All right, let's, let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, you are good, and we um, welcome your presence through your Holy Spirit here with us this morning. And Lord, I pray that each of us, um, each of us would be seeking your truth and your grace. Each of us would be reflective of the great lengths that you have gone to to be present with us in our lives today as we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in our series, The Amazing Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? And I'm going to try to remember to actually do this today, which is great. Um, The Amazing Acts of the Holy Spirit. And so when we were thinking up this series, I kept calling it The Incredible Acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, because they're pretty incredible, right? Uh, And then Pastor Kurt said, that's not what that word means. Uh, What is, if something is invisible, it means that it's not visible. And if something is um, indivisible, it means that it's not dividable. Uh, And so if something is incredible, it means that it's not credible. And we use that word in our culture to explain really neat things. Uh, That Cyclone game last night was incredible. If you stayed up to watch it, I couldn't last. Um, It was incredible, but, but no, it actually was credible and it actually happened, right? Like, go turn on ESPN. You know that it happened. You can see that. And the scriptures in the book of Acts are written uh, from a historical perspective on first-hand eyewitness accounts. So I think we can call these things credible. Uh, so we're, we're calling them the amazing acts of the Holy Spirit. And so today I do have to apologize. I might use the word incredible a few times. I'll try to correct myself when I do. Uh, but the amazing acts of the Holy Spirit. God is amazing. We have an amazing God who does amazing things. And that's what we're looking at here in the first half of the book of Acts. And today we're looking at two main pieces of our scripture. First, the Gospel of John, where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He promises that his presence will be sent to them. We'll dig into that. And then he talks about what it'll be like when that's fulfilled. And then in the second scripture, we see Pentecost. And it's a treat to be able to preach on that in the fall. Uh, We see Pentecost and the outpouring of the promised spirit and then Peter's amazing sermon to those who are around gathered and seeing what's going on here so the first thing today i want to look at is this uh this idea of uh, the holy spirit in our culture uh because there's a lot of findings and a lot of studies that point to the idea that maybe maybe there's a whole lot of people that call themselves christians that have some beliefs about the holy spirit that aren't necessarily biblical, aren't necessarily things that we gather from the pages of Scripture. And I like well-done studies that give us a snapshot of the condition of our culture, um, of the Christian church in the United States. So uh, a friend from Emmanuel here sent me this uh, article link earlier this week, and it was perfect timing to go along. So I'm going to read a couple excerpts from this study. I didn't have all the words up there because it was a lot of words. Uh, But the the title of this article, this is a study down um, in the Arizona Christian University Cultural Research Center. Uh, the, the article is called, Most Adult U.S. Christians Don't Believe the Holy Spirit is Real. All right. So here's three excerpts I want to give, uh, kind of on the condition of Christianity in the United States. So the first excerpt paragraph is this. Of an estimated 176 million American adults who self-identify as Christian... 
So 176 million people would say, I'm a Christian. They'd check that box. Only 6% or 15 million of them actually hold a biblical worldview based on this new study from Arizona Christian University. And what is a biblical worldview? There's a lot of different chunks, like meat and potato chunks, that all Christians historically and today, kind of like these common confessions that the deacons are talking about, we gather around these faith statements. We gather around this theology because we find them prevalent and clear in the Bible, in the scripture. So that's what we mean by biblical worldview. And so just 6% of these self-identified Christians come into alignment with all of those sort of meat and potato biblical aspects, okay? Just 6%. And there's, there's a lot of things in that that we don't have time to get into today. We're going to focus more on the Holy Spirit. Uh, but this is, this is kind of a big deal. If there's 176 million people that say I'm a Christian in our country, and only 6% of them would, would gather around the core historical uh, tenets of the Christian faith based on the scriptures. So that's one thing this study found. The second excerpt I'm going to read is this. The study shows, in general, that while a majority of America's self-identified Christians, including many who identify as evangelical, believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is the creator of the universe, more than half reject a number of biblical teachings and principles, including the existence of the Holy Spirit. More than half of these Christians reject some part of the historical tenets of Christianity. And we probably, if we could track them all in their lives, it'd probably be obvious. Uh, But in this scenario, that's a lot. And one of the big ones where there was uh, dissonance was on the Holy Spirit. And one more excerpt for you here. Now this is talking about a subgroup. Some 62% of self-identified born-again Christians, this is a subgroup within Christians, born-again Christians, contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, and purity. Another 61% say that all religious faiths are of equal value, and 60% believe that if a person is good enough, or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. All of these positions challenge a biblical worldview. Hopefully some red flags go up in your head when you hear some of those things, right? Over half of self-described born-again Christians put equal value in all of the world's faiths, not Jesus. Over half believe that if you're good enough, you can do works to get into heaven. And that is the exact opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The exact opposite. The gospel is that Jesus did what we 100% could not do to save us from our sins and conquer death. And then he invites us into this relationship with him so that we may understand and know what true life is. So that was a scary study. (laughs) A little bit scary if you're a a pastor. Um, So So don't believe the I'm a Christian box. Not everybody who checks that understands what they are saying and lives according to what they are saying. So what do we do with a study like this? As we dig into Acts and the amazing Acts of the Holy Spirit, 
I think we need to ask ourselves a really important question. Do we actually believe in the third person of the Trinity? Do we actually believe the Holy Spirit is real and exists, the one that we confess belief in every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, as we just did, or do we think it's just a metaphor and that God isn't actively dwelling in us? Because those are two very different things to believe. Two very different things. Here's what I know, and this is really important. The church is the body of Christ, right? Like, if Jesus is the head, all of the followers of Jesus make up the body. That's how that analogy, that metaphor works. And here's what I know. There, there is no body of Christ without Christ in the body. There's no body of Christ without Christ in the body. If Andrew here, Andrew's body, if Andrew leaves to go be with the Lord, his body is still going to be here. That is no longer the body of Andrew, okay? My presence would not be in that body. And if the presence of the Holy Spirit is not in the body of Christ, it's not really the body of Christ, because that is exactly how Jesus said he would create his body, he would form his church, and he would be present in the world through his people. The true church only exists when Jesus is part of it. And he's part of it through the way he said he would be in our John Gospel today. And the way he promised to be. And the way he is. And that's through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's our foundation for this conversation. That's our, our biblical worldview on the church and what the church is. We are the church to the extent that we allow God's presence into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what makes us the church. And if we reject the Holy Spirit, if we reject God's presence in us and through us, we cease to be part of that church. And that's very important, obviously. So let's first dig into John's text here today, uh, the Gospel of John. There we go. So I'm going to pick a few excerpts out of here to highlight what Jesus is promising. So uh, we're picking up in verse 5. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus is beginning to clue in his disciples in John's gospel narrative here that his time with them is coming to an end. It's getting closer. And he says that he's going back to the one who sent him, the Father. And Jesus recognizes their sadness, right? They actually don't want their rabbi and their friend to leave. That's a good thing. They don't want to be separated from this person who seems to be turning the world upside down. But more than that, for these disciples who had faith that Jesus was truly the Messiah... Jesus leaving wasn't what they had in mind for what the Messiah was supposed to do. Uh, we've talked about frequently on Palm Sunday. They, they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem as king, and they want him to go sit on the throne and reestablish Israel as a geopolitical nation. And so if these disciples thought that that was part of the gig that the Messiah was going to be taking on, they probably thought him leaving wasn't the best of ideas. They might have actually been questioning whether this was truly 
the Messiah. We don't know. But the tone that is being set here in John 16, it's one of sorrow. These disciples are sad that Jesus is going to depart. And so Jesus' words now are in a direct response to that. Picking up in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus is speaking some encouragement here. They are sad. He's saying, I'm going to depart soon. And Jesus says, just wait. He said that his leaving is actually an advantage. His leaving them is actually an advantage. And that if he goes, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will be sent to them. And they're going to get to experience his presence and his power and his love in a whole different, tangible, real way. It's an advantage that he leaves to fulfill the plans that he was sent for, that he came for. And the Holy Spirit will then convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. How much do we need that Spirit's conviction in our world? I think we do. We should welcome the Holy Spirit to do that in our lives and in the church and pray that God continues to convict the world through these means that he said he was going to. Picking up in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit's going to do a couple of things here. The Holy Spirit's going to... um, like we saw in verse 8 through 11, the Spirit will guide and direct God's purposes in the world. So that's a big thing. That's, uh, God will um, convict the world regarding God's truth and righteousness. And then the second is this, the Spirit will guide Jesus' followers, his people, his church, into all of the truth. And the Holy Spirit will glorify God in both of those things. Both when the Spirit brings conviction of sin and righteousness, God is glorified. And when the Holy Spirit leads us deeper and deeper into God's truth, God is glorified as well. Because the purpose of the Holy Spirit is also to glorify God. So if something isn't consistent with Jesus' life and how Jesus glorified God, there's a good chance it's not the Spirit leading it. If something isn't consistent with God's law and grace through Jesus Christ, it's probably not the Spirit sending it. And directing it. So in our John Gospel, Jesus has set this stage. He makes the promise. The Holy Spirit, the Helper, is coming. And so now we fast forward to Pentecost. So we've talked about Pentecost a few times since I've been here at Emmanuel. Uh, we get to do that every year uh, on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Pentecost, again, here's a couple reminders. Pentecost was a pre-existing Jewish festival. So these Jews that are gathered here at this time, and they see these events unfold, they were there for a Jewish festival. And Jews gathered from all over the region, including those speaking different languages, okay? And 
it's not just what we think it is as the church. We celebrate it as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but this is a historical thing that they gathered here for, and now we just view it differently because of what Jesus and the Holy Spirit has done. So Pentecost was an amazing, miraculous experience for two groups of people. Uh, Those whom the Spirit fell upon in a very powerful and real way, and those who witnessed it and recognized that God was doing something big. Not everyone in that group fell into one of those two categories. There were people there that didn't understand, that doubted, um, that grumbled, but many people did. So let's dig into Acts chapter 2 a little bit and see Jesus fulfilling his promise. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the disciples are together and Jesus fulfills his promise in a very powerful and real way in their midst. And a bunch of them start speaking in languages that they don't know. Has that ever happened to you? I won't ask you to raise your hand. And Acts goes on to tell us that because of Pentecost, because of this Jewish festival, there were people from all over the place there, including those that spoke different languages, and they did know the languages that were being spoken, even when the ones speaking them didn't know the language. And friends, what this boils down to is that this is ground zero for the church. This is the birth of the church, because this is the moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out into the followers of Jesus to establish something new in this world. This is it. This is the beginning of the church as we know it today, and hopefully as we experience it and continue to know it until Jesus returns. Only through Jesus fulfilling his promise does this happen. Only through Jesus is there a church. That's why we're here today. And there's also some grumblers, right? Uh, A couple weeks ago, I talked about the story of Zacchaeus, and there were these people that didn't like that Jesus was going to go hang out with the sinner and go to his house. They were grumblers. And here we have grumblers again, too. They they think that these guys have been drinking too much at 9 in the morning. And so they blame all of this not on the miraculous power of God coming in, but on alcohol. There's always going to be grumblers. In this case, here they are in the story. But Peter freshly empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit for the first time, he's empowered to speak truth and to glorify God, and he's brings some perspective to these people gathered from all over the place that are here witnessing these events. And so he quotes the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, 
and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's pretty smart, quoting Jewish prophets to a bunch of Jews gathered for a religious festival. He's using what they already knew and what they already understood to explain what God is doing in this moment because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of the presence now of the Holy Spirit. And this also shows us that the promise that Jesus made in John wasn't the first time that God alluded to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And God had actually been doing this through his prophets throughout the Old Testament. And Peter recognized that, and Peter, filled with the Spirit, lays it out for them here. In many ways, God has been calling this event into, um, into being. He's been alluding to it for generations to come. And he gives glimpses of the Messiah and the Holy Spirit to the prophets of old. And in this moment, because of the Holy Spirit and, and Peter working with the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus. Just like that. 3,000 people, followers of Jesus, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. This was an amazing moment for sure. It wasn't incredible. It was amazing. Jesus fulfills his promise to send his presence, his Holy Spirit, and God is glorified. I'm thankful that God works in this way. I'm thankful, you know, this isn't the only revival that's ever happened either. They're all over the place. God is pouring out his spirit on his people all over the place. And I encourage you to look for those stories and to listen to those stories because it's really encouraging for us as the body of Christ to know that God continues to do amazing acts through his people. I'm thankful that God works in this way. It's a very, like, intimate way that God's presence is in us through his Holy Spirit, and it's a very personal way. But one of the things I'm also thankful of is there's, it's like a community way. The body of Christ is not one person. It's not one person. It's us. There's no I in body. A devotional that I read at our staff meeting this week from Billy Graham's website was also really timely on this. And so I'm going to read for you an excerpt of that. The only true body in the world is the church. The world may talk grandly of brotherhood, but in reality its philosophy is each man for himself. God's children are guaranteed the richest and the truest friendship both here and hereafter. Only in a true friendship and a true love do we find a genuine basis for peace. Only God can break down the national and the racial barriers that divide men today. And only God can supply that love that we must have for our fellow. We will never build brotherhood of man upon the earth until we are believers in Christ Jesus. The only true cohesive power in the world is Christ. He alone can bind human hearts together in genuine love. What he's arguing here in this devotional, the way God intended the body to be, the way God intended love to be and community to be, the church is the only place where that can actually happen. And I pray and I hope that there is something appealing to the world 
when the church lives out that mission, when the church lives out that reality, where we're a place where we actually have each other's backs and we pray for one another and we bless one another, and we can form friendships because of the Holy Spirit that the world can't know about until they experience the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The only true body in the world is the church. And the body of Christ is only the body of Christ when Jesus is in that body, when his presence through the Holy Spirit, like he said, is with us. Through the Spirit, we can experience real love, real peace, and real friendship. So 2,000 years ago, the church was born. The body of Christ became something not about the physical body of Christ, but about a godly love and a presence that is about so much more, it is so much bigger, it is timeless, and it covers this globe. And it's big enough to bring real love and real peace and real friendship. And this, friends, is what the Holy Spirit does in us and among us. And we need it. We need the Holy Spirit. And I would say we need to learn to pay more attention to the Holy Spirit and to what the Holy Spirit is doing and wants to do in his body, in us. The church exists because of the Holy Spirit. The church exists because the promised helper and Spirit of God poured out on believers at Pentecost is a real event that happened. And the church exists today because the Holy Spirit, the promised helper and the Spirit of God, continues to be poured out on all who believe. We are part of the same body that these early believers were part of on Pentecost. We are fueled by the same Holy Spirit that these early believers were fueled by. We are capable of the same amazing acts as God moves through the power of his Holy Spirit as what we see in the pages of this acts. Jesus made a promise, Jesus fulfills it, and he continues to fulfill it today. And as we go on in the amazing acts of the Holy Spirit, we'll read and we'll study that these are all very good things. And I pray that you are open to realize that it is the same Holy Spirit that makes us the true church today and empowers us. Do you believe it? Do you believe in the third person of the Trinity? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is very much real and that God very much loves you and wants to dwell in you, in your presence? I know many of you do, but maybe you've never thought about that question. Friends, the Holy Spirit is real. And I pray that we're open to God leading us and filling us in a very real way, in a very amazing way from this time forward. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for sending your spirit. We thank you, God, that for thousands of years you have been good on your promises. You made good on your promises to Noah, to Abraham, to the prophets, to David, to Solomon. And Lord, we see many of your promises fulfilled through Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection. And the promises that Jesus reiterates about this helper, this Holy Spirit, we praise you, God, for fulfilling that promise on Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to fill 
us with your spirit, that we'd continue to fulfill that same promise to this church today. Lord, may we have open hearts. May we be eager to experience your kingdom in a new way, in a way that is led and and filled by you and your presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.